The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Corporate Drinker, a punk rock HR production. In each episode, Corporate Drinker explores the intricate ties between work culture and alcohol. Now, there's no judgment here. The podcast tells stories of regular people like you and me who may have complicated relationships with drinking. I'll talk to leadership gurus, therapists, addiction specialists, and even HR and marketing professionals who have hot takes on how and why alcohol and work have become so interconnected. And of course, I'll speak to brilliant people with big ideas on cultivating genuine cultures of inclusion and belonging so leaders and employees can enhance their work environment and reduce unnecessary conflict with or without alcohol. In this episode, I'm speaking with Karina Monison. Karina is my friend and works at a company called UKG, and her primary job is to do research and to talk and speak about trends that affect the workforce. She's particularly interested in frontline workers, but also is interested in that intersection of work, well-being, and addiction. And I brought her on the show today to talk about all of that and specifically her own story about being in recovery. So if you're looking for some hard data on the world of work and alcohol and addiction, well, we're going to bring you that. But we're also going to bring you Karina's very interesting, very compelling, and very human personal story on this week's Corporate Drinker. Hey, Karina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lori. So fabulous to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we are longtime pals, but for the rest of the world who doesn't know who you are and what you're all about, uh, can you tell us your backstory? Absolutely. So professionally, my backstory is I am the senior manager of human insights research and advisory at UKG. We are a global HCM and workforce management solution provider, and I'm a former market researcher, former journalist, and I think I have the best job in the world because I really get to identify topics that are having a significant impact on the world of work and especially on people and really do these deep dive analyses into how business leaders and HR leaders can take better care of their people to drive positive outcomes within their organizations. Mm. And you've also got a personal backstory, right? You're a mom, you're, you know, someone who's very active in the well-being community. So tell us a little bit about who you are when you're not working. Well, thank you, Lori. Yes, I have two daughters. I have an eight and a half year old and a two and a half year old. And at the moment of this recording, I'm actually about six and a half months pregnant with my third child. So uh, being a mother is a really core aspect of who I am. I love my kids. 
of course, as everyone does. And I also love my job. And so it has been a really interesting dynamic where I feel like I'm oftentimes pulled into these two separate worlds where on the one hand, I want to continue growing my career and I want to continue to be the best self in every way that I can and, and just hustle hard. And on the other hand, sometimes I just want to collapse in bed and, and go live on a remote island with my children and no technology. And so I'm, I'm living this constant balance that, that uh, so many working individuals can relate to as well as working mothers of young kids. And so it's really become a passion of mine, really diving into the motherhood penalty at work and trying to provide resources and tips and tricks, both for myself to help myself learn how to manage this balance, as well as hopefully help other mothers in the same boat kind of cope with the challenges as well. Well, you know, a lot of people talk about how motherhood is a gift. And I think a lot of that's just like the thing you have to say, right? But for you, you've had a long and winding road, a hard fought road to get where you are. And you've, you've got some like skin in the game when it comes to the topic of corporate drinking. So would you mind sharing your backstory uh, before all the good stuff? Now, there were some dark times. There absolutely were. And I am so grateful for the opportunity to talk about this. So thank you for giving me the platform, Lori. My history with alcohol is complicated. I am a hardcore alcoholic, a recovered hardcore alcoholic. And my drinking career began when I was 14 years old. And my journey into the depths of addiction was very fast and furious. Addiction runs rampant on both sides of my family. So it's probably no surprise that, you know, one of us children got it. But for me, the very first time I ever took a drink, I'll never forget it. I was on vacation with my sister. We snuck out of the condo my parents had rented and met up with some boys on the beach. And I got alcohol poisoning that very first night. I, I completely blacked out. I was vomiting like crazy. And what I will never forget is the next morning we were driving to the airport and I was still getting sick. And all I could think about was, oh my gosh, that was so much fun. I can't wait to do that again. And it felt like for that moment in time, the alcohol made me, it was like it, it scratched an itch. I didn't even know that I had. And it, it felt like I was prettier. I was more desirable. I was funnier that these boys liked me instead of my sister. When that never happened, it just, it felt like I became more of the type of person that I wanted to be under the influence of alcohol, even though of course, to a normal person looking at it, it was not that way at all. <laughs> but that was my that was my experience. And I was able to I, I pretty much drank excessively every single time I drank. I would either throw up or black out. But I had a great family. I had great parents. I was a really good student. I was taking very advanced classes. And so for the rest of my high school experience, I was able to keep it in check, I guess. Like I always got out of control when I was at a party, but but I was drinking such a small percentage of my life that it didn't impact me at that point. But by the time I got to college, it was an entirely different story and it was balls to the walls. And by the time I was uh, in my sophomore year, I was failing out of classes. I was blackout drunk by 10 a.m. I was experimenting with a lot of other types of substances and I ended up going to rehab for the very first time at 19. And that was the first of three inpatient rehabs that I ended up going to in between the ages of 19 and 24. And uh, by the end of my addiction, I was essentially 
coming to in various bodily fluids and, uh, you know, coming in and basically getting out of bed to get more alcohol and then passing out again. And that was my life. Um, it, it got very dark very quickly for me. I was not a functional alcoholic. And in many ways, I'm actually grateful for that because it forced me to get sober at 24 as opposed to 65. I'm incredibly grateful for the resources that I had, the opportunity to go to treatment, the opportunity to get exposed to recovery. But to me, it really drove home the fact that like alcoholics and addicts are not bad people. We're sick people. This is a disease. It is chronic. It's hereditary. It's prone to relapses. And yet we as a society are treating it with so much stigma that we have lifted. I think a lot of mental health, we've, we've come to terms with the fact that these are diseases. We're a lot more open about talking about mental health, but addiction still seems different. And so I really want to take my experience as a woman in recovery to share that alcoholics and drug addicts are not bad people, right? We're, we're sick people. And when we are given the ability to get well, we can be incredible employees, incredible partners, incredible parents. Well, one of the really moving things about your story is that you've found a career that aligns with an experience that you've had, and you're actually able to make a difference. You're actually able to talk about addiction, recovery, workplace issues, motherhood. It just so neatly ties up with the things you're good at around communicating, right? I mean, it's such a blessing that you persevered and you bet on yourself and you pushed through to be able to come here today. And I'm so grateful you're on the podcast. I asked um, if you could come and talk a little bit about some statistics and data around alcohol use and, uh, you know, addiction and misuse and all of that. And you had an interesting perspective on why alcohol may not be so clear cut to research. Can you, can you talk about that? Absolutely. So there are, I mean, obviously addiction in the country as well as worldwide is a huge issue. So there are some really fantastic organizations that are dedicated to researching it, including uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, known as SAMHSA within the U.S. and the World Health Organization. So there is a lot of research that's being done on the prevalence of alcohol misuse as well as drug use and misuse. But when it comes to identifying someone as having substance use disorder, that can be more challenging because there is a difference between abuse and a disorder. And so often- Wait, wait, what's the difference? <laughs> well, the difference is that someone really kind of has to say, I- I want to get help and go into treatment. And that's where a lot of the numbers, that's where a lot of the figures come into play in terms of identifying someone as having a substance use disorder as opposed to being a binge drinker. So that's uh, that's some of the differences and it is challenging. So we can look at the data on, uh, SAMHSA does have guidelines on classifying someone as having substance use disorder. I believe it is it is if you are binge drinking, which is between four to five drinks at a time, for the previous five, for five days out of the previous 30 days would classify you as having substance use disorder. I think a lot of people would raise their hands, especially corporate individuals who travel, right? Who attend conferences, who are regularly entertaining clients or being entertained. I think four to five drinks on a Tuesday night starts to rack up quickly if you're traveling throughout the month, right? So uh, this to me seems more prevalent than we talk about. The other thing I would imagine is that COVID has had an impact on rising rates of 
abuse and people identifying as having a disorder, right? So what's the impact of COVID on all of this? COVID has been an incredible change here. So you hit the nail on the head and actually one out of two employees admitted to drinking on the clock while they were working from home in early 2020. And 60% of people reported that they were drinking significantly more than they did pre-COVID. And I think many of us saw the news headlines about how you know people were ordering alcohol to be delivered directly to their houses. It was one thing that people, that in toilet paper, right? People were willing to let themselves run out of that. And so we know that drinking and drug use increased significantly during the course of the pandemic. And hand in hand with that, we also saw a dramatic uptick in the number of substance-related deaths. Unfortunately, those have been those have been rising for a very long time, uh, probably forever, right? But in the past six years, those numbers have doubled. You know, I think it's interesting because I can't tell you how many corporate events I attended sponsored by companies, sponsored by my clients during the pandemic where we'd all get on Zoom and maybe we would do a wine tasting and they had chipped wine to my house or we would do a mezcal tasting. I mean, everything was kind of oriented around drinking, like let's all do a happy hour and get a beer. And all of that was terrible, by the way, like doing anything via Zoom is suboptimal. But I just wonder... I wonder what the corporate role here is, because I'm someone who believes that as adults, we make choices, right? And we choose how to show up to work. And we also bring our whole selves to the bottle. So I don't know that I'm in a position yet in my life where I want to say corporate America and global corporations can fix this. And yet they collude and they're complicit, right? So I don't know. Tell me what your thoughts are on this, because mine are all muddled. No, I, I love that you bring that up because it is a complicated situation. And even as someone in recovery, my feelings about it are complicated because on the one hand, there is this work hard, play hard party culture that is deeply ingrained in corporate America. And I understand that, right? And I, I, I travel a lot for work. I go to a lot of these events and it is fun. It's a way to unwind. And the majority of people do not suffer from substance use disorder. Yeah, right? is that is that a fact? Like wh what's the statistic on that? So it's about 7.4% of Americans who are classified as substance use disorder according to SAMHSA. And that is from 2019, that's the most recent data point that I could find. So, you know, it, it may be it may be higher right now. We we don't really but right. So maybe one in 10. And I think the argument from a lot of individuals that I hear is like, we don't design, you know, for, I can't believe I'm going to use this word, but we don't design for the lowest common denominator. Right. And I think I get it, but that also doesn't seem like what we're trying to do around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. So there's a conflict there as well. Like why wouldn't we design for the one person who is struggling? Because it would hopefully improve the conditions for all of us. But I, again, I don't know. Am I onto something here? I think you are. And I think it might come down to, let's look at the ratios here, right? If we're, if we're having team building events, which we should, I don't, I, as someone in recovery, I would feel uncomfortable if my team felt like they could not drink around me because they were uncomfortable about the fact that I was in recovery. And I am very open about being in recovery. I recognize that most people or a lot of people who are in recovery probably will not be as open in their professional settings as I have. So they might not even know. But to 
to me and speaking for, for many of my friends and, and people that I know who are also in recovery, we don't want to feel like other people are, are feel obligated to change their lives to capitulate to us. However, if every single team building experience is a happy hour of some, some sort, that's an opportunity to reevaluate the type of culture that you're creating. Because even if alcoholism and substance use disorder wasn't an issue at all, do you really want that to be the go-to for your team? We're talking about wellness. We're talking about employee health. And we know that alcohol is, is probably not conducive to that in most circumstances. So maybe why don't we incorporate some things like, you know, painting classes or or I, I've, I've gone to so many really fun team building experiences where we were actually doing an experience together. We were outside, we were doing a volunteer event, something like that, that every single team building experience does not have to revolve around alcohol. And so that is what I would suggest. It's not getting rid of it completely, but it's how do we balance this with other type of team building opportunities? And if we are going to be having a large event where there's a lot of alcohol being served, could we have, this is a big one. Could we have fun mocktails that don't look like a cup of water, right? Yeah, <laughs> Can yeah, we have yeah. some <laughs> order to make it a little bit less obvious that they're not drinking like everybody else and also have a little bit of fun and something tasty to go along with it while they're there? Well, sure. I mean, that's all very reasonable, right? All of this is reasonable, which is what... I, I don't understand when people push back against, you know, changing cultures, changing traditions, changing, you know, rituals that we have in the workplace. Like, we're not asking you to sever your arm. We're asking you to, like, serve some fun spritzy drink that is safe for all of us. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that we may not know who's in recovery, because I think for a lot of us, many of us have had the experience of working with someone who eventually comes out and identifies as someone who's struggling with alcohol or substance abuse disorders. And we're like, what? We didn't know, right? We, we missed it. So can you talk a little bit about looking out for other people? Or I mean, we should all mind your own business, right? But what are some of the signs that if we see, we could recognize that this person may need some help, whether it's an intervention from HR or the number to the EAP, like what, what are we looking for here? Right. So I think we all have very clear memories of being at that HR event or that business event where probably quite a few instances that we can think back on where people, you know, went a little bit wild. And it's certainly cannot say that that person is an alcoholic, right? A lot of people let loose a little bit too much. But if there's if there's a trend that you're starting to witness, um, that could be a red flag. Other red flags that I have talked to business leaders about include things like seeing performance ratings drop significantly. Obviously, if someone is coming into the office and you smell alcohol on them, that can be a, a really big indicator. And you know, you might be thinking that that's because they drank before they came, but for many people when they're drinking, this, this was the case for me, when they're drinking to such a heavy extent at home, even after sleeping it off, so to speak, their body is still detoxing and they still smell like alcohol the next day. And so sometimes there are physical symptoms that you can see like that. If you are wanting to you know, to take some next steps, I would highly recommend having another person come and validate your experiences. So it's not this, he said, she said type of situation. So if you are concerned about someone um, and you think that they might be intoxicated while on the job or something like that, it's definitely wise to have another manager or a senior partner come and, uh, 
you know, just to validate what it is that you're seeing or smelling or whatever the case may be. So that is important, but, but performance can be an indicator, especially if we're talking about hybrid or remote employees where some of these more visual physical cues are no longer available to us. Mm. You know, I'm really uh, fascinated by what you said, like check your expectations, check your assumptions and bring someone else in to have a look, because I think there are two types of people at work, people who avoid and people who like glom onto a situation and try to fix it. And while we all want to be helpful, right, that may not be our role, that may not be our job and our judgments aren't always the best judgments in that situation. So that's like spot on. I also wonder if there is a distinction in different workplaces. And I don't just mean on how we deal with this, but just the overall trends of alcohol. I know you have a passion for frontline workers, essential workers, people who are doing important work in this country, but I may be crazy here, but I wonder if substance abuse rates are higher in some of those jobs than they are in like customer service. Although I don't know, I've worked with plenty of people who are in recovery in customer service. So I don't know, is there anything about the type of work that we do that factors into some of these conversations? So I have not seen any data on that, but my gut instinct is that it does not matter. And when uh, you're in recovery, a lot of the times there's something that people say about how alcohol and addiction in general is the great equalizer from, oh my gosh, I'm going to blank on the term now. It's a great one though, but from like, from, from Wall Street to, to Walgreens, to the bridge, that's not an Right. To Walgreens. Thank you. I love it. From Wall Street to Walgreens, right? It's it's a great equalizer and it truly impacts all of us. And so I have not seen any data to indicate that cert- that uh, people are prone, more prone to addiction, regardless of where they work or the fact that like the people that are addicted or suffering from substance use disorder are more prone to be in frontline work as opposed to high level corporate jobs. Like in, from what I've seen, it is very well established throughout. And so I would be actually pretty surprised to find that there was a correlation there. Yeah, I know. Now that I said it, I'm like, of course, that's dumb. I mean, <laughs> this and like I can think of every industry and every job where I know someone who struggles, right? I mean, it's you're right. It's not, I think about the industry, it's about the individual and their upbringing and their genetics and so many other factors, correct? Absolutely. And another thing that I think ties in really nicely to this line of thought, because I I do think that, again, this is where that stigma comes into play, or these assumptions come into play, where many of us automatically think of the skid row drunk. When we think about addiction, we think of someone homeless that has a bottle in their hand and a paper bag. Yeah, because the reality is that that is not. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That is not what addiction looks like in our country today. And in fact, SAMHSA estimates that about 75% of all substance use disorder sufferers are actively employed. They're full-time employees. And so again, that doesn't, that doesn't say what type of work that they're doing, but we know that they're in the workforce. And this is, this is a presentation research that I've delivered multiple times in a variety of different settings. And every time I, I, I ask people who are, who are in attendance, you know, please raise your hand if you've ever had to deal with challenges related to employee substance use disorder or getting someone into treatment or giving them a last chance agreement. And inevitably, almost every single person in the room raises their hands. So this is, this is the untapped 
story here, right? We we know that this is a critical issue and yet we're not talking about it because it's not in vogue. It's 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 dirty, it's scary. I don't know what it is, but but this is a significant challenge for all of us in all industries and especially for HR leaders and who are not substance use therapists, right? They cannot diagnose someone. So it's and a very maybe, challenging situation. Yeah, and maybe experiencing this in their own lives, in their own individual circumstances as well. You know, you bring up a really interesting point that we're not talking about it. It's not sexy, you know. I think a lot of people truly feel that this is a personal issue and we show up at work and we should just work, even, even post-COVID, right? When we were all talking about compassion and empathy, at the end of the day, it's a job and you you either show up and do your job or you don't, and we'll deal with that, but they don't want to get into the touchy feely, maybe because there aren't a lot of really good resources, a lot of good ways to deal with this from a workforce perspective yet. So I don't know, do you, do you think what I just said has merit? And, and what do you say to someone like me? Who's like, I don't want to deal with somebody's alcoholism, right? I, I got my own problems. I'm just their manager. How do you, how do you address that? Again, I myself am not a substance use disorder therapist. I'm not an addiction therapist. So I, all I have to go on is my personal experience as a working. Well, in your research and, yeah. my, and my research, but I think the biggest thing is that oftentimes when it comes to addiction, we cannot, you know, they say you, you can't help someone who doesn't want to help themselves. And as cliche as that, you have to hit rock bottom statement is it does hold true and everyone's rock bottom looks different for me it was i was dying my liver was failing at 24 years old a lot of people don't have to get to that point to be willing to to make a change and to be willing to do whatever it takes to figure out how to live sober but but we really cannot force people to change in this regard. And it is a disease and that's the challenge. And, and that's why, that's why I think that mental health, many other mental health disorders have a different connotation to them than addiction does. Because when you have a loved one or a friend or family member who is addicted to drugs or alcohol, it's incomprehensible, their behavior, right? You, you love them, but you have a really hard time rationalizing how they're behaving, these choices that they're making, because it seems like so much of it is a choice. And it is, but there's also a, a choicelessness that's innate to the to it too. So it really is a very challenging, the, the choice is to take the first drink, the choice is to take the first drug. And oftentimes once that roller coaster begins, it's it's very difficult to get out without some type of outside intervention or some type of event, catastrophic event that really forces you to take a step back and say, I can't live like this anymore. And for me, it was, it was being told at 24 years old that I was dying and then my liver was failing. And so I would say that while to go back to your, sorry for that tangent, to go back to your question, I don't necessarily think that it is appropriate for a manager to sit someone down and say, I think you're an alcoholic and I think you're a drug addict. And I want to help you get help because here I am on my white horse. Like that probably isn't your place, especially if their performance is not changing. If their performance has changed, if they have, if there's some type of event, like they show up to work intoxicated or they, they get out of control at a workplace event and you have this opportunity to sit them down and say, listen, this was inappropriate. This was unacceptable. 
I want to work with you. Please tell me what's going on with you, but I'm concerned and it feels like it's leading to an unsafe work environment. I'd love to get you help if that's something that you feel like you need. And then open up the conversation from there. But but that would be my suggestion from the research that I've done is that, you know, it's not necessarily if if none of those events are taking place and you just have a feeling that Susie Q drinks too much and, you know, you think her life would be better without it. If there aren't extenuating circumstances that give you a valid reason to approach them and to say, hey, I'm here for you. I'm not sure that it's appropriate. And, and, the, and the caveat to contradict myself here would be that, you know, we know that the importance of the manager-employee relationship cannot be put into words or statistics. No, I know. So fostering, I would say that managers really have the biggest piece to play here. And if they're able to really foster a strong relationship with their people and to open up some conversations where it might be like, hey, you seem off, something seems wrong. You know, is there something that I can do or is there something that you want to talk about? And giving them the opportunity to say, you know what, I, I actually have been struggling. I think I might need help. Well, this is one of the many reasons why I invited you on the podcast today to talk about these tough issues, the complexities around dealing with these disorders, the complexities around remembering that these individuals are human, but also you serve as such a good example of what happens if we just believe in people and we foster an opportunity for them to go into recovery and to grow and to thrive. So thanks for being open with your story today. And we'll be sure to link to all of your good stuff in the show notes. Thank you so much, Lori. It's always a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate, again, the opportunity to be here. This is such a critical topic, and I'm proud that you are using your platform and your voice to bring light to it. Because again, people aren't talking about it, and we need to be. Oh, they will be when Corporate Drinker, the book comes out now. Come on, let's have some faith. Yes. <laughs> I have nothing but faith. The Corporate Drinker Podcast is a special series brought to you by Punk Rock HR. If you like what you heard, head on over to your favorite streaming platform and leave a five-star rating and a review. You can also head on over to punkrockhr.com for news, information, show notes, and all the good stuff related to Corporate Drinker. This episode was expertly produced and edited by my friends at Emerald City Productions with special help from Danny and Michael. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch you next time on the Corporate Drinker Podcast.